Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 31, Heraclius and the Great War. The war with Persia had been raging for many years now, and the Romans were starting to lose ground. This forced Heraclius to find ways to fund the soldiers fighting the Persians. Even though the war with Persia was the most dangerous threat to the Roman Empire, Heraclius spent his early years in office strengthening his ties within the capital. The last thing he wanted to have happen was another usurper challenge him and take him out with the help and the will of the populace. Now this could be seen as a very wise move because it ensured the stability as an emperor. However, the war with Persia wasn't your typical skirmish for a piece of territory here and a castle there. This was turning into a greater conflict. The best way to describe it is the antiquities version of World War I, where each nation threw all of its resources, land, and human bodies into the meat grinder. The Byzantine generals in the east were not just losing land in cities. They were also losing tax incomes, which started to take an effect on the treasury. This war raged on for years, and after several embarrassing defeats, the emperor was able to eliminate some of his political rivals by pinning the failures of the army on them. Specifically, Priscus, the son-in-law to Emperor Phocas. So although Heraclius was losing territory in the war, he used this as an opportunity to strengthen his grip over the empire. In 611, the Persian general Shabaraz, who was the greatest general the Sassanids ever knew in history, captured the city of Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the east, which was a huge loss for the empire. With the loss of Antioch came the loss of a large tax revenue, which was to go towards the pay of his soldiers. In 612, the Empress Eudokia died of an epileptic seizure. The death was a shock to Heraclius and the empire. During her funeral procession, she was carried to the Church of the Holy Apostles where she was buried. Apparently, a maidservant spat onto the coffin from a window while she was being paraded through the streets, and the people went nuts and dragged the maidservant from the house and burned her alive in the streets. After burying his wife, Heraclius rode out with his soldiers and confronted the Sassanids at the gates between Anatolia and Syria. In 613 CE, the Romans were losing battles fast, and suddenly the lines started to break down until there was a total collapse. Antioch and several other key cities in the eastern frontier fell to the Persians, which sent a major shock through the empire, as they were not only major cities in the empire, but major cities within the Christian religion. Heraclius then decided to take a second wife. He was an emperor, and emperors needed an empress. But to the absolute horror of the entire empire, especially the church, he chose to marry his niece. This was absolutely illegal and disgusting, and everyone around him, including his own family, criticized him for it. But still, the patriarch ended up crowning Martina 
empress of the Roman Empire. Coincidentally, all of the children born from that marriage turn out to be physically and mentally disabled. In 614, the most holy site in the Christian religion, Jerusalem, fell to the Persians. One of Persia's best generals, who just came from conquering Antioch, laid siege to Jerusalem. And within a month, the most holiest city in Christendom and the Roman Empire fell to a heathen army. The True Cross, one of the holiest relics of Roman Christendom, was captured by the Sassanids and carried back to Tessaphon, the capital of the Sassanid Empire. This was a true trophy in the war against the Romans. The Holy Sepulchre, the holiest of churches, said to have been built on the place of crucifixion, was burned to the ground. Many citizens of the empire blamed the fall of Jerusalem on Heraclius' sins for marrying his niece. They claimed this was God's way of punishing the church and empire for allowing the marriage between Heraclius and Martina. From a strategic point of view, the fall of Jerusalem wasn't that big of a deal. The location wasn't important, and there was no huge tax revenue loss when it fell. So although the city falling was extremely demoralizing, it wasn't worth the resources to take it back first. There were more important battles to fight up north. The native Jewish population sided with the Persians during the siege and governed over the region during the occupation. This caused a large rise in anti-Semitism in Constantinople, which was not as prevalent before this. The significance of the fall of Jerusalem can be better understood when you realize that Jerusalem had been under Roman control for over 600 years. That's more than double the lifespan of the United States. Imagine Paris falling to the Nazis in 1945, and then they burned down the Louvre and Eiffel Tower and Notre Dame, and perhaps that will paint a good picture of how significant this was. The loss of the Holy Sepulchre was seen as a sign of the end of times, and many people refused to enlist and fight against the Sassanids. In 615, the Sassanids made it all the way to Chalcedon and besieged the city. Chalcedon was so close to Constantinople that today, they both reside within the city limits of Istanbul. This was terrifying for the Roman citizens. War had literally crept right up to the capital. No one was safe. In 616, Heraclius was forced to cut the pay for all soldiers and politicians in half, angering a lot of people and opening up the opportunity for others to overthrow him. Knowing just how vulnerable he was, he spent most of his time in the palace, where he was most capable of protecting the throne. In 617, Chalcedon fell to the Persians, and the end seemed nigh. Now the citizens had only to look across the water to see the Persian army. To make matters worse, the Slavs and Avars in the north crossed the Roman borders and were now pouring into the empire. The Romans were losing ground on all fronts. Luckily, though, most of the Avars and Slavs were focusing on settling the land and were not raiding the countryside. But the Romans didn't know that at the time. Either way, they were losing land. In 618, the situation became so bad for the Romans that they sought peace with Castro and offered the Persians all of Palestine and Syria. 
But Khosrow was convinced in taking it all and invaded Egypt. If Khosrow were to succeed against the Romans, he would become the greatest Persian ruler since Cyrus the Great. Heraclius was probably lucky Khosrow tore that offer up, as the reactions from the people in the empire, knowing their super-emperor just gave away the holiest of cities to the Persians. Either way, Khosrow had the messengers imprisoned and starved to death. In 619, the Persians marched south to conquer Alexandria in Egypt and burned the famous Library of Alexandria. However, there are some who say the burning happened during the Arab conquest, and others who believe the library just fell into disrepair and neglect and accidentally caught on fire. We may never know the absolute truth. The burning of this library was a crime against humanity. An untold amount of history was lost forever. By 621, the Persian Empire had Egypt and North Africa back in their hands for the first time since Alexander the Great. No matter how bad the fall of Antioch was, the fall of Alexandria and Egypt was far more devastating. Not just because of the tax revenue lost, but also because of all their grain shipments were now cut off. This loss meant that it was only a matter of time before the people of Constantinople began to starve. Heraclius knew just how devastating this was, because only a few years before, when he rebelled against the Emperor Phocas, it was Egypt Heraclius struck first. By 620, the Balkans were completely overrun by Avars, and a new tribe, the Bulgars, started to cross over the Danube. In 622, after taking Egypt and the Levant, Kusro quickly spread into Anatolia, taking with it large pieces of the Eastern Roman Empire. To make matters even worse, the Sassanids acquired a navy, and now were conquering Greek islands in the Aegean Sea. It almost looked as though the Romans were about to become a client kingdom of the great Persian Sassanid Empire. Right when times were at their darkest, on the Persian front, terrible news from the west reached Heraclius. The Avars and Slavs had invaded from the north, quickly capturing territory in the Balkans. Heraclius was being squeezed from every side and quickly felt himself confined to Constantinople and a few Greek islands in the sea. This is the time period in which the heaviest Slavic settlements of the region took place. It looked like the Roman Empire was about to completely collapse. Bringing the empire back from the brink of defeat was going to take some serious genius and leadership. Heraclius was up to the task. He first adopted new accounting rules that helped curb the spending of the empire, starting with the payment of all Roman soldiers with silver coins instead of gold coins. Heraclius even ended the Annona, which was a, a tradition started by the Gracchia brothers in 123 BCE, which guaranteed a citizen a loaf of bread for every single day. By cutting this 750-year-old entitlement, Heraclius saved the empire lots of gold. This forced a lot of citizens to leave the capital in search of more food elsewhere within the empire, but with total war to the east and north, many citizens perished. This was a great humanitarian crisis within the empire. The cut of this grain dole meant a great population decrease in the city, and Constantinople never regained from this decline. Although the population remained around 80,000, 
and was still one of the largest cities in the medieval period, it was nothing compared to its height, which was nearly a million people. The situation became so desperate that Heraclius even contemplated moving the capital of the empire to Carthage. But that never happened. Confined to Constantinople and a few Greek islands, Heraclius organized a new field army and left the capital in the hands of the patriarch. Once his army was ready, he exploded out of the gates of Constantinople and marched across Anatolia, capturing all of eastern Anatolia and headed straight for Cappadocia and intercepted the supply lines of the Sassanid military. The two armies met in a mountain pass, and after narrowly escaping an ambush, the Romans turned and fought the Sassanids, defeating the Persian army. This defeat pushed the entire Sassanid empire out of Anatolia. Before Heraclius could follow the Persians into Syria, word had made it to the emperor. The Avars had invaded from the north. Having no choice, Heraclius left his army in the city of Trebizond and rode back to Constantinople with a detachment. When his army confronted the Avars, they were shocked by the size and ferocity of them. The Romans and Heraclius were pushed all the way back to Constantinople. This was the worst timing for Heraclius, so he did what anyone would do in this situation. He gave the Avars giant piles of gold and told them to go away. In 623, Martina joined Heraclius on campaign and even gave birth to a son. While on campaign, he made it to a Zoroastrian temple and searched the place high and low in search of the true cross. And when he couldn't find it, he burnt the entire temple to the ground. In 624, Heraclius tried once again to get a peace treaty between the Romans and the Sassanids. Khusro II rejected the offer outright. Meanwhile, reinforcements from Constantinople arrived to strengthen Heraclius' army. He now commanded a force of 30,000 Roman soldiers. Heraclius went from city to city, liberating them from the Persians, securing all of Anatolia and the Syrian border. He then marched them northeast along the northern border of the Sassanid Empire into Armenia and Azerbaijan. Heraclius had managed to circle around the north of the Persian Empire and open a new front on the coast of the Caspian Sea. Khusro marched an army of 40,000 men north and fought Heraclius. This battle took place around the Caspian Sea, but there aren't many details of what happened, other than the fact that the Romans won. Khusro sent three small armies north to block all of the passages out of the Caucasus, hoping to trap him up there and cut him off from Constantinople. Instead of holding their ground and blocking the passage through the mountains, Heraclius managed to lure two of the armies out of their defenses and engage them in battle, destroying them both. In 625, Emperor Heraclius attempted to march his army out of the Caucasus and back to Anatolia, when they encountered another greater Sassanid army blocking the passage. Unfortunately for Heraclius, his army was in the middle of crossing a bridge when they encountered the Sassanids and a laws of Byzantine soldiers died trying to get across the bridge. Seeing the water was shallow enough for horses, he led a charge against the main Persian army and managed to scatter the Sassanid army and was forced to march north through the mountains. His army traveled through the cold winter months, through narrow canyons and valleys, 
that led them to the northern plains of Anatolia. He was finally back in the Roman Empire. No sooner than they arrived in Anatolia did the Sassanids launch a full-scale attack through the narrow valleys from Syria. Heraclius managed to repel them, but his troops were growing tired, and he retired his army to Trebizond, an Anatolian city along the southeast coast of the Black Sea. While Heraclius was recuperating over the winter months, Kusro was building two brand new armies. The first was to remain within the Sassanid Empire and defend against any surprise incursions, and the second was to march into Roman territory and deal the killer blow. This army had over 50,000 men, and it marched straight for Constantinople. In early 626, the Persian army managed to get an alliance between the Avars, and together they attacked Constantinople with both of their armies from all sides. This was a combined army of almost 100,000 warriors. Unable to leave his post in Trebizond, Heraclius sent a small detachment to attack the Persians from the rear while they besieged the capital. However, the Persians didn't have a navy, or at least a navy that could help them, and they relied entirely on the Slavs to ferry them across the waters. While they were ferrying the Persians across the seas, the Byzantine Imperial Navy intercepted the Slavic ships and sunk them all to hell. This completely halted the Persian assault on Constantinople, and although the Avars would try several more times to take the capital, the Romans managed to hold off every single attack. Heraclius reached out to the Gokturk tribes in northern Armenia and managed to form a strong alliance of Turk and Roman soldiers by offering his daughter's hand in marriage to the Khan. However, the marriage never took place as the Khan died in the upcoming battle. Together they created an army of over 40,000 troops and were stationed on the northern borders of the Persian Empire. This alliance came around the same time a top Persian general defected and attacked Khosrow II, creating turmoil within the Sassanid Empire. Without waiting for the snow to melt, Heraclius marched his army through the winter months across the gates from Anatolia. In 627, Heraclius marched into Mesopotamia and made it all the way to the ruins of the ancient Assyrian city of Nineveh, which we today know as Mosul. Heraclius intercepted a message from Khosrow to his top general Shabaraz, and he changed the orders, making it look like there was a huge victory for the Persians and that his army was to remain in Anatolia. Unbeknownst to them at the time, this was going to be the decisive battle of the Great War. While the two armies faced off against each other on the battlefield and thousands of men fell, the Sassanids started to fall back and defeat loomed over the Persians. With the battle looking grim, one of Khosrow's generals rode out and challenged Heraclius to single combat, and Heraclius, in his late fifties, accepted this challenge. To everyone's surprise, Heraclius won the challenge, and the loss of their general demoralized the Persians, and the armies scattered. It is said that two more Persian commanders challenged him in combat, and he defeated both of them. 6,000 Sassanid soldiers died in battle that day. This defeat did not destroy the Persian military, but it did scatter them and make the entire military effort more disorganized. Kastro retreated back to Iran with the majority of his army to regroup and prepare for the coming battle in Tessaphon, 
and then fled to the eastern provinces. When his top general arrived late, Khosrow had Shabaraz accused of treason, not realizing that it was Heraclius who intercepted and changed his orders. His troops were becoming uneasy, especially after spending decades in foreign territory, and even more so because Castro had the opportunity years ago to accept a peace treaty with the Romans that would have guaranteed them their new conquest, but Castro threw it all away in order to have it all, and now they had nothing. In 628, the Persian soldiers mutinied against Khosrow II and imprisoned him until he starved to death, forcing his son, Kavad II, to take over as the king of kings under the sole requirement that he seek peace with the Romans. Kavad II proceeded to execute all of his brothers and half-brothers, but after his sister scorned him for his barbaric actions, he started to feel bad about what he had done. These actions divided the noble families of the empire, and the native Parthian and Sasanian families grew to resent each other, which sowed the seeds for a coming civil war. When the Persians asked Heraclius what kind of terms he was seeking, his main demand was for everything to return to the way they were before the war. He wanted the borders to go back to pre-war borders. All of the holy Christian relics returned to Jerusalem. Later in 628, Kavad II died of the plague, and his son, Ardashir II, took command. Ardashir's father was the king of kings, but his mother was a Byzantine princess, and this lineage made him very unpopular with the local population. On September 14th, 628, Heraclius entered Constantinople in triumph with his army, four Persian elephants, and the true cross. He was honored by the Senate and proclaimed Scipio. His popularity was at an all-time high. Had he died around this time, he would have no doubt gone down in history as the greatest emperor of the Byzantine Empire. In 629, there was a parade as the true cross was returned to the holy city of Jerusalem, as thousands of spectators cheered. Heraclius was a great hero. No one can ever deny that. He saved the empire from destruction and did not command troops from the safety of a tent while drinking wine, he led his troops into enemy territory and even fought in single combat against the enemy multiple times. For the next seven years, Heraclius traveled the eastern provinces trying to clean up the mess left over from the long war. In 630, Shabaraz marched on Tessaphon with 6,000 men, besieged the city and overthrew Ardashir, crowning himself king of kings, starting a brand new dynasty in the empire. Shabaraz had Ardashir executed at the ripe old age of nine. His dynasty would live on for 41 more days. Heraclius is one of my favorite emperors for his true bravery and even more so for his fairness in which he sought peace with the Persian Empire. All seemed very well with the Byzantines, but they were weakened. The army was completely exhausted. The treasury was empty, and the lands completely ravaged. Even the Persian army was in complete disarray, leaving the Sassanids open to civil war. It was going to take at least a decade or two for the empires to recover from this great war. Unfortunately, they weren't going to get that time. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.